It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and man, this was the week for break-ins. The PlayStation Network, it's a real security nightmare. And bad guys broke into the nuclear facility at Oak Ridge and got a lot of data out of the computers. What does it all mean? We'll talk about it next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 298, recorded April 27th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 116. Security Now is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash security now, and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies. Stream to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers uh, your security and privacy online. Boy, there couldn't be a, a better time to do a show like that. Of course, we started this show more than five years ago. Steve Gibson has been the host ever since from GRC.com. We thought five years ago we might run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> well, when you first proposed it, I was thinking, uh, boy, I wonder, I know, what, what are we going to talk about? Oof. Will we have enough? And here we are, episode 298. And, uh, yeah, we got to get a ton of information this week. Really interesting stuff. There was a breach at the Oak Ridge National Lab. Oh, boy. Another good. spear phishing attack uh, there. And, of course, the what, big in the news was 77 million um, users of the Sony PlayStation Network had all of their personal information lost. So Jeez. funny that I have a new attacks and breaches section in our podcast. We, I think that's going to be a busy section <laughs> and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Well, so, see, and that, of course, we've got great Q&A episode this week. That's the thing. I think if you invest, uh, if you buy futures in insecurity, you're going to be all right. God, it ain't I going know. away. God, and it just seems that we see over and over and over where it takes a catastrophe mm -hmm. for these companies to get a clue. I mean, clearly, uh, based on what Sony has said, and we'll be describing this, they're cautioning people that if you use the same email address and password anywhere else as you, do, as you did or do at Sony, you need to change that too. Oh, which dear. Means, which, yes, which, 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 I mean, all follows the, the, the best... Um, practices that we've been talking about for, for password management. I got a problem because I signed up for PSN probably three or four years ago. I have I don't remember what my password is, and I can't log into it, obviously, to figure <laughs> it out. Oh, just ask the hackers what your password is, Leo. They have and I don't, know what I, I don't know what credit cards are in file with them or anything. I mean, I, I haven't used it in years, and yet 
presumably uh, I'm compromised. Mm-hmm. Holy 77, cow. 77, the, well, they, they said everyone, their entire network. Well, and it, you could tell it's bad because they said, uh, we're not going to put it back up till we can figure it, till we fix it. Well, and it, they, didn't, they didn't even explain what happened for six days. It just went off. It was shut down, and people were saying, hey, what happened to PlayStation Network? Finally, they admitted point. that you know, it was a breach, and we can't fix it, and we're going to start from scratch, they say. Yeah. So I guess I take it this means that the passwords weren't hashed. Precisely what I was going to say is that not only the passwords were not hashed, so the, the, the bad guys got away with the, you know, basically unencrypted data, nor were credit card information, expiration date, a, um, a billing address. I mean, everything you gave Sony to sign up, they have acknowledged Jiminy. probably got loose. That's terrible. It's, it's as bad as it gets. It's terrible. Uh, 77 million. So, so clearly, they're, you know, they were <laughs> running this huge network with really very minimal concern for security. It's like, oh, well, nothing bad has happened so far, so nothing ever will. Anyway, it'll be interesting if we do learn more. Right now, they're being very mum yeah. about, about, like, what it is that happened, how it happened, who got in. They are, they, they've said that they've hired a, a well-known, highly respected security firm to come in and do a forensic analysis and tell them what happened. So, I don't know. you got to wonder <laughs> who built this network that they aren't monitoring, monitoring and managing the security themselves. But anyway. Ooh. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, there's lots more to talk about. I mean, if you if you think that's bad, oh, how, tons how, of how about a, a break in at the Oak Ridge National? <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, that's a nuclear facility, isn't it? Exactly. Right, yes, gonna, it is. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Before we do, let me remind everybody, and we've talked about this before, that Netflix is a sponsor, and everybody needs to join Netflix, and that's all I have to say. Really, should be all. I mean, ever you know what Netflix is? It's a DVD by mail system. I mean, I think uh, there's nobody probably within the sound of our voices that doesn't know about Netflix. Uh, it would only be an issue of, for some reason, you've decided you don't want to be a member. Maybe because you don't like movies. You know, you don't like, you don't want to watch anything on. Maybe you don't even have a TV or an iPad or a computer. Well, see that you wouldn't be watching this if you didn't have a computer. You see, you you can watch Netflix movies on all of those. Netflix has this, and or your iPhone. Netflix has this great streaming system. If you don't like DVDs, you could doesn't mean you don't like Netflix. So the original Netflix, very clever, was uh, DVDs by mail. Uh, and here's how it works. You, you sign up for an account, and you can have one, two, three, four, or five DVDs at a time. I guess you could have more by getting more accounts. I have the five DVD uh, system. So they, uh, you, you, go to a, you make a queue of the movies you want to see. This is my queue. There are uh, 234 movies on there. Uh, they send you the first five in the queue. And then you have it as long as you want. No late fees or anything. When you're done with the movie, you they, they have a prepaid mailer that everybody's seen those red envelopes. They send it back. You send it back. Within one business day, you get the next movie. So there's no late fees. You keep, and I, you know some of these movies. Let's see. I've had this one since January, <laughs> January third. <laughs> I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Part of the reason is the new Instant. The watch instantly is fantastic. You see, I have a second queue here. Instant, 358 movies in there. Those are movies that I can watch anytime, anywhere. Instantly, on a computer, on a Roku box, on a PlayStation 3, 
on a Xbox 360 on a Wii. And, you know, that's the problem is, I, for instance, I was just watching the new Downton Abbey, uh, the Masterpiece Theater last night. Finished it. Love it. Five stars all the way. Watch instantly. Henry likes the family guy. So <laughs> he's watching the family guy. These, this, and the best part is this subscription is only $8 a month, $7.99 a month. What a great way to just watch a ton of movies anytime you want. And you don't have to put them on a queue because here's the deal. You browse the Watch Instantly section and anything you like, you watch it instantly. Hence the name. Oh, this looks interesting. I love British uh, TV shows. A lot of British TV comedies. They recommend those because I watch a lot of them. So they have a good recommendation system. I just, I just love it. The classic Mean Streets. Oh, one of the great Martin Scorsese movies. One of his first. And you see, it was recommended because I like Fargo being John Malkovich and the Big Lebowski. So they figured I like Mean Streets. They're right. Look at all these movies. TV shows, too. More new movies all the time. Oh, I see The Graduates there. And by the way, not just older movies. Salt, last year's, uh, inc oh, this was a good movie, Angelina Jolie movie. You can watch it right now. Watch it right now. Go to netflix.com slash twit. Oh, I didn't see. These are three movies I missed. Easy A, I really want to see. Salt, I really want to see. Finally did see it the other night. And then the other guys, that's that uh, Will Ferrell movie. I missed it. I miss a lot of movies, as you can see. Hot Tub Time Machine, that was a great movie. Hmm. Mm, Gangs of New York, great movie. Just and, and, of course, TV now. Glee is on there, the first season. They just got Mad Men. All, I think all, whatever, five or six seasons. Spartacus, Blood and Sand. People love them. I, I hadn't seen it, so I watched it. One right after the other. You eat these things like candy, and you can. Five discs, forget it. I can watch five shows in one night. Try it free. Netflix.com slash twit. Have you signed up yet, Steve? No. <laughs> we'll get you. But I love listening to it. So just keep working on me, Liam. <laughs> it's the it's funny cuz I mean, I really I don't I, I I don't even know why they're advertising because everybody's a member. Everybody is a member. But uh well, gift certificates, that's good. So if you have a family member that's kind of, you know, doesn't know about it. I gave my mom a Netflix every every year on her birthday, I give her a year of Netflix. And she loved. That's such a great gift. She just loves it. Netflix.com slash twit. Come on, Steve. Come on, come on, come on. All right, let's talk about Oak Ridge National Laboratories. What do they, what do, they do at Oak Ridge? Um, well, they're a department of the U.S. Uh, department of Energy. And uh, I, the I, DOE I, is, by the way, a very highly uh, security conscious enterprise. A lot, they have a, their DOE webpage has all these recommendations for security. Yeah. For well, end users. And, and here's the problem is a phishing attack, a spear phishing attack is extremely effective. Um, I'm going to quote from what the Sands Institute wrote because they had a really nice summary of this. They said the U.S. Department of Energy's DOE Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee has shut down email systems and employee Internet access following the discovery of a cyber attack last week. Oh, boy. The attack which some have called, here we go again, Advanced Persistent Threat, APT. Well, and I know that's, we, we saw that with RSA, and what that meant was somebody opened their email. So it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, not, it's a little less impressive when you, when you look at the man behind the curtain. It says, um, appears to have targeted Oak Ridge and several other national laboratories in the U.S. Oh, man. Yeah. Is this our version of Stuxnet? 
<laughs> the protective measures were taken after an investigation indicated that the attackers were trying to steal technical data. You know, like what plans for nuclear weapons yeah. or something. That's yeah. the kind of You'd stuff we have there. This would be the most secure place <laughs> in the world. Investigators believed that they stole less than one gig, oh good, of data before the attack was thwarted. The attack gained its initial foothold on the laboratory system through spear phishing messages that appeared to come from the HR, Human Resources Department, regarding employee benefit changes. So, somebody opened their email. When the recipients clicked on the provided link, malware was downloaded into their systems. More than 10% of the employees who received the message said they clicked on the link. At least we have oh. honest employees oh. at the DOE. Oh. Well, 10% honest. <laughs> it could have been 50%. Uh, that's a very good point, 10% honest. Just two of those machines became infected with malware that lay dormant for a week all they need. before it started harvesting and sending data to a remote server. Lab Deputy Director Thomas Zakaria says that, quote, one of the core competencies at the lab is cybersecurity research, unquote. And it so, is. If you go to the DOE page, this is a big thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Eugene Schultz, who's an editor for Sands Institute, he wrote something in reply to this uh, that I really appreciated. He said, spear phishing attacks, such as the one against ORNL, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, invariably succeed... Users are getting trained, or users are getting training concerning how to resist such attacks, but the training is not sufficient. It goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> More radical, and parens, and possibly somewhat potentially traumatic, unclosed parens, training, such as inoculation training, in which users are sent simulated messages uh. and malware in training labs and malware in training labs and loud noises go off if they open one of these messages is needed now <laughs> wait a minute i think that's a loud noises I, I okay but <laughs> one of the one of the problems is i mean i uh, in in a way i think uh, gene makes an extremely good point which is there isn't any there isn't any um daily encounter that people have in the workplace with their employers testing them right. to make sure they don't click the link. Right. We should do that. I mean, that's brilliant, really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, think about it. The, you know, large companies ought to, the, 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 the security departments of large companies ought to be proactive in deliberately sending email, which is spear phishing. That is, you know, they know the employees, they know what departments they're in, they know what they're interested in. See if, I mean, send them baiting email tied to a an exe or a script or something which runs that, that notifies the employee and headquarters that, whoops, a link got clicked on. And obviously it's not malicious, but it, I mean, it's, it's a test. And if you even fall, so first of all, that would that would spread through a company like Wildfire, the news that that was being done, and put everyone on guard. 
and people who did click the links would have would have that experience. We don't need loud noises going off, but they'd be, they'd be like, "Oh my goodness, that's what they're that's what they've been talking about." I, I do I mean, kind of like the loud noises, though. <laughs> Here's an infographic. This is from um, a, a website called KindSight.net on uh, the process of infection. Yeah, and. Uh, so what's interesting is that it lay dormant for two weeks. It's also interesting that only two people got bit. Was that because you think they had antivirus software? I would, or it may, it could have been various patch levels. It's that sort of thing. Ah, it's, yes, of course, yes. People clicked on it, but some people had, you know, their machines were current, and other people were more like me. Oh, I'll reboot soon. Yeah. Uh, and 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 they hadn't yet. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, so here it is. The, the problem is we've got, and again, how is it that technical data of a protected nature can can be accessed by some some computer that's receiving email from the internet? I mean, just saying that. I mean, it's like RSA's problem where somehow. The most critical, crucial data they had was available to, to I think we heard it was a secretary who was yeah. who you know clicked on on this email. So the, the rich the irony of it. I mean, this is DOE's website, their national security page, cybersecurity protection, managing operations security, preventing the spread of weapons. Of these guys specialize in teaching people how to secure their businesses. Yeah, this is what they do. It's yeah. not, I mean, so, this is as bad as RSA. So I mean, it. The only thing I could imagine when you when you think when you put yourself in the position of someone clicking the link, they received an email that bore probably had you know Oak Ridge National Laboratory letterhead, stationery, logo on it, looked absolutely legitimate from Human Resources and. They clicked on a link. So th that says that the only way to prevent this is for no one to ever click on a link Thank in email. I mean, you. You, you just can't. I, I, you, I mean, you, you can't so trust many... it. It can come, come from your mom, and, you know, or it can come from yourself or something. I mean, it just, there's just no, there's no way to trust the contents of email because it's, it's all able to come in from the outside. We've been saying this for so long. I know. Yeah. It's, it's really scary, frankly, because um, this is not just trivial. This isn't a trivial website no. here. No. So breach number two oh, there's of, more. Our, <laughs> of our new attacks and breaches section. Soon to be the longest section of the show. <laughs> yes. Sony's screw up, um, as we were talking at the top of the show. Basically, they are saying that... They had a network, a server, a database, something somewhere in which the detailed personal information of 77 million users, that is all the people who were present in the Sony's PlayStation network, had a compromise. They posted an FAQ, a frequently asked questions, and I'm going to quote from two questions from that that are, that are most salient here. Question number six is, at, they're asking themselves, does that mean all users' information was compromised? 
tell us more details of what personal information leaked. And the response is, in terms of possibility, yes. We believe <laughs> that, so an that an unauthorized person, this is Sony speaking, an unauthorized person has obtained the following information that you provided. Name, address, city, state, province, zip, or postal code, country, email address, birth date, so PlayStation Network password, login, password security answers, and handle slash PlayStation Network online ID. It is also possible that your profile data may have been obtained, including purchase history and billing address, city, state, province, zip, or postal code. If you have authorized a sub-account for your dependent, the same data with respect to your dependent may have been obtained. If you have provided your credit card data through PlayStation Network or, what is this, uh, uh, curiosity, curiosity, I guess, is there, oh, is there curiosity. audio? Yeah, that's the, uh, that's, uh, yeah, it's like a podcast. It, it's related. Yeah. So it is possible, they, they, uh, continuing from Sony, that your credit card number and expiration date may also have been obtained. <laughs> and then question nine is, I want to know if my account has been affected. Yeah. Well, and don't so log in. Yeah. Sony says, to protect against possible identity theft or financial loss. We <laughs> love that opening. Yeah. We encourage you to remain vigilant. <laughs> Unlike us, apparently. Yeah, we haven't, but we want yeah. you to. So now you have to. Uh, to review your account statements oh and to monitor your credit reports. Additionally, if you use the same username or password for your PlayStation Network or, um, or Curiosity service account for other unrelated services or accounts elsewhere on the Internet, they mean, we strongly recommend that you change them. When the PlayStation Network and Curiosity services are back online, we also strongly recommend that you log on to change your password at that time. We certainly do. Another fine and, mess you've got us into. And at the bottom was, get your free credit reports here. What? They, they provided the links and phone numbers to the three credit reporting agencies. They're not... They're not taking responsibility. They're not paying for them. But they they did mention that as a and they cited some law which said that you know required that these agencies provide free credit reports at least once a year. So Sony said if you're concerned or in order to manage any any fallout from this, you can and we advise you to pull all your credit reports and see if anyone has been making inquiries trying to open accounts using this personal information because they're talking about identity theft, of course. And this is the mother load of identity theft. This is stunning. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how it could get any worse. <laughs> I know. And, and nothing encrypted. Just here it is, folks. You know, it's probably in a big SQL database. 77 million people. So well, I wish we had those one-time use credit cards still. That would have been a yes. perfect solution for this. Yes, yes. I mean, we, we, we. The good news is this gets a lot of press. It. I mean, no, these things are generating press. We talked about the Apple tracking, and we're, we're going to come back to that here in a second. But 
But letters were written from Congress to Steve Jobs asking what exactly it is that Apple is doing. Yeah. So, you know, and, and Sony has not stated whether they were storing their data in, um, in, in compliance with the, 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 the formal regulations that the credit card industry has set up for the way this data is stored, one of them being it needs to be encrypted. So and it it's hard to imagine that it was. So, uh, yeah. And and again, we'll we'll try I'll keep an eye on this and and share any other d information we learn about how this was perpetrated, how you know how long the people were rummaging around in there. But I mean, we're we're I think we're probably today at the worst part point we're going to be. I hope My sense so. Is Yes, it can't because it can't get much. It can't get much worse, and and we're all becoming extremely dependent upon our connectivity. Here, you and I, before we began recording, we're talking about cloud services and stuff in the cloud and 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 all of that. So, so my feeling is these high-profile breaches have to have other CEOs, COOs. Uh, CFOs saying to their security personnel, tell me how this cannot happen to us. Is all of this data encrypted? You know, th those questions have clearly not been asked until now, right. certainly not within Sony. Um, you know, how is it that a secretary can open email and have access to highly confidential secret technical information? I mean, you know, th 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 that's there's a there's architectural problems which which underlie underlie these the, the breaches of this kind it shouldn't be possible for this to happen so i, I think in time architect are you know the architecture will change so that it's not or so that it's radically more difficult this is just you know shooting fish in a barrel apparently because yeah. Again, you know, this is now a weekly topic. Major breaches that are occurring with clearly increasing frequency. I just have to think that... Um, boy, I, I hope it gets better, but I, 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 it's, it's, it's something that is so well understood already that I just have to think that companies are kind of... Yeah. Um, accepting it, they—they they, it's like, well, this is this is part of the price of doing business. Somebody in the chat room said, and I thought this was good. I wonder what the r ratio of the amount of money Sony spent on lawyers in the last week <laughs> is to the amount of money Sony spent on security experts to fix the problem. And he says, oh, I, I suspect they spent a lot more on lawyers. It's a very good point, and you can imagine lawsuits will be flying. And so. I think that Sony and companies like this, and we know this about the banks, they just batten down the hatches and they just say, well, it's the price of doing business. Rather than or, have a real security policy. And point at everybody else. Well, look, everybody else is having problems. I hope it doesn't... Uh, my, my real fear is that it, it has a chilling effect on people using the Internet and e-commerce and everything else. I mean, people are really going to think... Normal people, not, not us, but normal people are going to really... Well, actually, we will too. Think twice about doing uh, giving people credit cards, things like that. Citibank apparently still does those one-time-use credit card numbers. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost worth getting an account just to have just that. Just to do that. Yeah, it really is. I want the one where you can, you use it once, but it, but it can be reused it's, as long as it's always the same company. So yes, it would exactly. be Sony's number, and only Sony could use it. Yes. 
I mean, I don't want to have to give a new credit card number every time I want to buy something. That's a pain. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> cheered me up. So, um, Apple responds to this whole issue that we discussed that was breaking news the morning that we recorded last week's podcast. Um, and I got a kick out of, uh, of some of their responses. Number six in their own Q&A was the, their, the, the question they posed to themselves. People have identified up to a year's worth of location data. More than that. Not just up to a year. Many yeah, years. Uh, being stored on the iPhone. Why does my iPhone need so much data in order to assist it in finding my location today? There, and Apple's answer to their own question this data is not the iPhone's location data. It is a subset, a cache, of the crowdsourced Wi-Fi hotspot and cell tower database, which is downloaded from Apple into the iPhone to assist the iPhone in rapidly and accurately calculating location. Well, that's interesting. I don't, I don't think it's true, unfortunately, Leo. No, because I'll tell you what. It, it, I, I know. Well, my ahead. own data was me. It wasn't yeah. a bunch of other it people. It wasn't crowdsourced. Maybe, I mean, it's downloading it, I guess, from where you are, based on where you are. I don't know. So they're saying the reason the iPhone stores so much data is a bug. Yeah. We uncovered. It's like the bars, right? Remember the, the whole nonsense with the bars right. showing right. a strong signal oh, when oopsies. you were you know, barely getting any? Oh, that was a bug. bug. We're going to fix that. So the reason the iPhone stores so much data is a bug we uncovered mm -hmm. and plan to fix shortly. Yes. Parens, see software update section below. We don't think the iPhone needs to store no. more than seven days of this yeah, data. That seems true, yeah. Okay, now that was question number six. Question number seven. When I turn off location services, why does my iPhone sometimes Still continue updating it. its Wi-Fi and cell tower data from Apple's crowdsourced database? Answer, it shouldn't. This is a bug. Oh. Which we plan to fix shortly. Parens, see software update section below. So they're they're now claiming that this was a bug. That I believe, and I also believe that it was a Skyhook-like attempt to collect uh, data about Wi-Fi access spot locations. You know how yes, Skyhook which works. which really does make sense. It makes sense that they would turn their users, thus the term crowdsourcing, into mobile probes, which would be associating Wi-Fi hotspots to cell tower databases. Exactly. I mean, uh, cell tower locations. They, spe they use Skyhook currently, but it's expensive, and they want to just create their own, just as Google has been creating their own with the Street View cars. Driving around all over the place. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. I yep. believe that it was a bug, because I don't see a lot of advantage to them saving it. And to be honest, I, I feel like you uh, this is not the you know biggest privacy issue ever. They should have absolutely let people know. But you're—I mean, if you carry around a cell phone with a GPS turned on, don't you think a lot of people know where you are at all times? Oh yeah. In fact, there was some someone in Congress, um, uh, Ed Markey of Massachusetts, asked there, uh, there, Apple was a, for clarification. A, right. There was that, but there were there was a gal who sued her cell provider for her own GPS data, and then. Um, and then posted the results to demonstrate what it was that, you know, cell companies had. And we know, for example, I mean, even if you didn't have GPS, our phone is logged into 
they the they know the nearest cell tower. They triangulate so, you know, cell towers. They know exactly where you are all the time. Yep. And they sell that information to law enforcement. They have portals. I don't. You don't even need to sue. This is apparent. Right. So I I think it's uh, I mean it's good. I mean certainly the people now are uh, know this and are knowledgeable about this, but uh, it's not. It doesn't shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. I don't think I think this is no more nefarious than Google's. Uh, 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 acquisition of ac accidental acquisition of an unencrypted Wi-Fi access spot data, and yep. I would treat it the same way. I think it's, however, in future, please let us know that you're doing this. I think Apple says, well, you do if you you agree to this when you. <laughs> by the way, this is another little disingenuous piece from Apple. When you first uh, connect your iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch, you get a box that says, "Would you be willing to give anonymous data, return anonymous data to Apple to help improve our services?" Yes or no? They say, well, that's the box. That's when you opted in. And if you don't want that, well, just either don't <laughs> check that box or don't or turn off location services. You've you know, opted and, in. And I guess there there's a question of proactivity. For example, if after a week or maybe a month, when you next synchronized your phone, iTunes popped up and showed you a map. That's what should where, happen. Yeah. Then they would say, hi, uh, just wanted to make sure that you understood that you've given us permission to send all this data back to Apple. Yeah. People would go, what? You know, because, you know, we click on yes now. We, we've been trained because no one can read the fine print in this stuff. And so, and also they really weren't very clear about what it was that they were, that, that they were sharing. And they always say, oh, it's anonymous and, you know, blah, 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 which it is, but it's not, it's not anonymous apparently when it's on your own computer. I mean, when I looked at my computer, I was seeing what was clearly where I had been. That yeah. is the data on my machine. So some of this doesn't really track with my own, my own personal experience, which I, you know, which I, um, Checked on when, when this first the story first surfaced. It doesn't last week. pass the smell test. Uh, yeah, it's, and they took so long to respond to this. Also, yeah, they really did. And so, in their software update section, they've said sometime in the next few weeks, <laughs> Apple will release a free iOS. Oh, free! That's nice. Free <laughs> iOS, <laughs> iOS software update that colon one reduces the size of the crowd-sourced Wi-Fi hotspot and cell tower database cached on the iPhone, two, ceases backing up this cache, and three, deletes this cache entirely yes. when location services is turned off. Good. So that's great. That means for people concerned, you don't need to go digging around in, in, a, you know, in your um, Mac looking for the consolidated.db file. You just turn location services off, Dock your phone, synchronize, and iTunes after this free iOS update will dutifully delete the the cache for you. So that's good. Okay. I'm so I'm trying to keep this blood pressure down here. Yeah, <laughs> you've so, not done much to help. The uh, in an what interesting else? an interesting story, uh, an interview uh, in Politico, uh, John Lebowitz who is the Federal Trade Commission, FTC chairman, singled out Google for not adopting the Do Not Track header. Oh, good. Um, Computer World reported uh, that Federal Trade Commission chairman John Lebowitz this, this week singled out Google 
for not adopting Do Not Track. The privacy feature lets consumers, as we know, opt out of online tracking by websites and advertisers. Um, and he see um, in in their story they said noting that Do Not Track had gained momentum. Leibowitz said, "Quote: Apple just announced they're going to put it in their Safari browser, so that gives you Apple, Microsoft, and Mozilla. Really, the only holdout." The only company that hasn't evolved as much as we would like on this is Google. So I just see this as good news because it is so trivial, so simple yeah. to add this to any browser that uh, Google just needs to. I think I mean, they will, but of course, remember that their business... Uh-huh. They bought DoubleClick.net. Yeah. I mean, this is their business is yes. tracking you. Uh, yes. <laughs> frankly, they own one of the worst offenders here, DoubleClick. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but I think that ne nevertheless, it's going to be pretty obvious that they have to do this. There's no, there's no way around it. Yeah. No, no browser will have it defaulted on. So everyone will have to be, you know, I have to turn it on, but you know, it'll happen. And by the way, I forgot to mention that I have had for years, uh, there's a page on GRC somewhere. <laughs> Actually, it's in, in, in the shields up menu of things you can do, which lets you look at your browser headers and it's trivial to go look there and see if the DNT colon one is actually being sent because GRC will show you. Okay. So that's something that I had, had meant to mention. Actually, I have some other tech that I haven't put online yet. Actually, it is online, but it's not enabled by default, um, where I will be showing you up in GRC's menu header uh, on the top of every page some of these privacy settings and alerting people if they're not taking advantage of them. So... I mean, I'm going to get proactive Good. with that. Um, yeah. That's great. So there was another interesting story that uh, I got, I learned about through people tweeting me. And I'll say again, thank you for everyone. I mean, believe me, I got <laughs> deluged with PlayStation Network <laughs> oh, <I laughs> tweets. Um, and this is really interesting. This is something that popped up on nmap.org, uh, the famous makers of um, the... Uh, the TCP scanner, mm -hmm. um, and that is something called a split handshake attack for TCP. What was discovered was that it was possible to bypass the operation of, of many intrusion detection systems by, by, by something called a split handshake. Huh. Um, I'll just read from the abstract of the PDF, which is posted, many network engineers might presume that the TCP three-way handshake is the one inviolate method of establishing TCP connections. A smaller percentage of engineers are also familiar with the little-used simultaneous open connection method of establishing TCP connections. I would be among them. Uh, researchers... <laughs> have discovered a third means to initiate TCP sessions, dubbed the split handshake method, which blends features of both the three-way handshake and the simultaneous open connection. Popular TCP IP networking stacks respect this novel handshaking method, including Microsoft, Apple, and Linux stacks with no modification. Given the novelty of the split handshaking technique, session-aware devices have had very little formal testing to determine their effectiveness in relation to sessions established this way. The author's audit 
a number of intrusion detection devices, NAT gateways, port scanners, and firewalls. And unexpected behavior was observed within each class of device and application. This inconsistent behavior leads to the conclusion that such network-aware devices and applications should undergo more rigorous testing by their respective manufacturers in an effort to reliably detect malicious traffic, handle network address translation more effectively, and detect the presence of servers offering this form of session establishment. Okay, so what does this all mean? Um, we've talked in the past, back in the dim history of the podcast, and will again when we refresh our um, our series on how the internet works, about how TCP functions. We all know that a client that wants to open a connection to a remote server sends a so-called TCP SYN, S-Y-N, packet to the server, which is short for synchronize. In that packet, the client provides a, a not quite random, but, un, but definitely unpredictable sequence number. Now, contemporary systems have very good unpredictability of sequence numbers, but historically, that was something that was not done well, and early attacks, which are no longer effective, took advantage of the fact that sequence numbers could be predicted. So the client sends a SYN packet, a TCP SYN, to the server saying, I want to establish a, a two-way TCP connection with you. The server typically sends a SYN ACK back, which is acknowledging the receipt of the client's SYN and also sending its own SYN, that is its own synchronization with a 32-bit initial sequence number in that packet. So that's used to establish its numbering of its packets, and then the client finally sends and acknowledges the receipt of the SYN portion of the SYNAC by sending an ACK back to the server, thus the three-way handshake, a SYN, a SYNAC, and an ACK. Now, one, another, the, the geniuses, the original geniuses that invented all this stuff realized there was the possibility of two machines on the internet wanting to simultaneously establish a conversation with each other. That is, it was possible that SYN packets might cross paths on the internet. Two endpoints, each sending a SYN to the other at the same time. So the original TCP specification handles that gracefully. It's called a simultaneous open where both two machines send a SYN to each other and then the other machine receives each other's SYN and then they send back acknowledgments of each other's SYN packet and have established a connection. So actually that's four packets transiting rather than just three, but it's called a simultaneous open. And in fact, it is a trick it's one of the main tricks used for penetrating NAT because what you in order for in order to do to, to connect two clients that are both behind NAT routers, as we know, NAT routers do not allow incoming unsolicited packets. So the trick is you get each end, each each of the endpoints that you want to connect through 
where they're each behind it, protected by a NAT router, you get them each to send outbound packets at the same time. And, and what that does is that the packets going out through the NAT routers conditions the NAT routers to accept return traffic from the, the proper IP and port. So the packets cross over through the internet and enter the NAT routers and allow you to establish a TCP connection. So it's, it's something which is, is well understood by people who really do understand the way TCP works. What these guys discovered is that there is a third way, not the normal three-way handshake and not the simultaneous open, but a third way that also works, which is, and this is kind of tricky, the client sends its SYN to the remote server. The server essentially ignores the SYN data, that is the client's sequence data, and does not send a SYNAC. Instead, the remote server sends a SYN, just a SYN, as if it was opening a connection to the client. Because the client has got a, a, a TCP connection in the process of coming up, it, it accepts the SYN even though it wasn't accompanied with the ACK, which the normal three-way handshake would. In response to that, it says, oh, hmm, well, I got a SYN, but I didn't get the SYN ACK. So it treats that as a dropped packet, and it resends a SYN, but it's also acknowledging the receipt of the server's SYN. So it, what it sends is a SYNAC, as, exactly as if a three-way handshake was going on, but initiated by the server rather than by the client. And when the server receives the client's SYNAC, it then acknowledges the receipt of the client's SYN, and the connection's open. But it in every way looks like the server initiated the connection, not the client. And what hap what was discovered was that there is there is network protection equipment um, which which doesn't handle this correctly. The 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 you know the IDS systems that are doing intrusion detection, they're set up to to monitor and handle outgoing TCP connections. When one comes back in, it's treated differently, and it turns out it allows bad guys to get around some of the protections and networks. So that was just, that ran across my radar, and I thought that was extremely cool. The split handshake. The split handshake connection. Um, uh, I've got a, a person who tweets from time to time who's also... Uh, a a blogger and uh, and a listener of the podcast uh, whose name is Andrew. He has a site called andrewtechhelp.com and he wrote a nice article after we covered and announced essentially the introduction of Microsoft's security scanner, the so-called MSS, um, last week and, uh, and sent me a little note saying, hey, Steve, I, I put together a nice article sort of explaining it if you want to share it. So I just thought I would I'd tell our listeners, if anyone is curious for more information, he did a nice little write-up about why it's not an antivirus, how it differs from that, 
And, uh, and I was impressed with what he wrote. So I wanted to share that at andrewtechhelp.com. Uh, if you go there, you just find the article about Microsoft Security Scanner. As currently, it's right on his homepage there. Great. And then in TWIC, This Week in Clever, Leo, <laughs> we have a new form of uh, steganography. Steganography is something we've actually never covered before because it's never impressed me very much. I mean, it's the, the, uh, it's the, the trick of hiding information um, like, uh, well, sort of in plain sight. For example, there, there's a, the Wikipedia has a nice article where they show you a picture of a forest or something which actually contains a hidden lower resolution picture of a kitten with a ball of yarn or something. <laughs> and the, the idea is, for example, if you have a 24-bit color photo, then you've got 8 bits for R, G, and B. But the fact is... Our eyes don't really need all eight bits. We wouldn't notice if the least significant bit in the various color bytes was off or on. We wouldn't detect the difference. Mm -mm. So, for example, you could hide a black and white photo or a lower resolution photo or actually digital information. It doesn't have to be a photo you're storing in a photo. You could hide a file inside a photograph by encoding the file's bits in the least significant bits of the photograph. So it'd be completely and invisible. And it works. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely, it works great. Um, I guess it never impressed me that much because, because the bandwidth is inherently limited. That is, the photo is going to be a certain size, so it's, you know, X by Y. You've got X times Y number of pixels and... If, for example, you only use the least significant bits of a 24-bit photo, um, then you get three bits times that. So it, it's it's not a lot of data you're able to hide. But clearly, I mean, it's it's apparently it has been used by spies. And for example, well, you know, it you, solves that problem in um, of having to pass a secret key. So you don't have to put a lot of data in. It could just be the secret key data, and then you could then pass data back in another form, right? Well, of course, it also solves the plausible deniability uh, yes. issue. It's just a I mean, picture. I mean, yeah, exactly. And you just post it on a website or you post it to, you know, a, 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 a photo aggregating site or you stick it on your Facebook page or I mean, it's, so it's in plain sight. Somebody else gets it, knows how to strip the, the noise bits, the least significant bits out and they've got a message. So anyway, get this. <laughs> They, uh, and this is why I think it's this week, and that's why I call it this week and clever. Disk drive steganography using deliberate fragmentation Ooh, clever. of files. I love it. <laughs> and so, uh, so think about it. You know, I mean, there is a that there is there is information in file fragments, which is completely different from the file contents. So, you know, we defrag our drives, which makes the files contiguous and packs them down at the front of the disk for maximum speed. But if you then deliberately fragmented the file system in, a, in some clever way, that could contain information itself. 
the way the files were fragmented while not altering the contents of the file system at all. So um, the, the inventors of this have, have said that their, their method would make it possible to encode a 20 megabyte message Ooh. on a 160 gigabyte portable hard drive. That's quite a bit. So that's a lot of data mm -hmm. on a hard drive that would not, it would not be obvious to anyone inspecting the drive. You would have to know that it was there. It's, it's of course, it's fragile because anything that changed any of those files would immediately destroy the fragmentation. So you could imagine if you needed to store less than, like dramatically less than 20 megabytes, you could put in like redundancy and error correction and, and things to, to like even be resilient in the face of uh, probably not a full defrag, but you know, some changes to the file system, you, your, your message could survive that. So the fact that it was 20 megs that you could store in a 160 gig drive, I thought, well, okay, this is worth talking about. So yeah. it's very cool and clever. Yeah. And I, uh, I ran across something, I don't remember now where, about um, a, uh, a widget for Windows 7. And I now have a Windows 7 up and running. In fact, we're talking through it at the moment. I, I built it, you know, on this fast machine that I built so that we would have something for, for both this um, for Skype. Uh, Skype and also for video when we switch to that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got a kick out of it. There's a widget. It's the end of support widget for <laughs> Windows XP. Is it like a clock that counts down? It is. <laughs> oh, my God. And, I, I I got a kick out of the fact, of course, it doesn't run on XP. Right. So I'm not really sure what, what you what what you use it for, because if in order to run it, you've got to have Windows Seven or probably Vista. It's just that anyway, this system will self-destruct in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to tell you, Leo, I I seriously considered playing hooky for a day and writing, you know, a GRC end of XP <laughs> service life for app. XP. <laughs> or XP, so that it could actually be sitting on people's XP machines. Anyway, the good news is, today, when I fired up Windows 7, we have 1,076 <laughs> days remaining. So I'm not going to start worrying yet about... It's XP. Service Pack 3. Service Pack 3, yes. You, yeah, yes. Well, service Pack 2 is lost, uh, stopped being supported. But Service Pack 3... 1,076 days remaining. So, everybody else who's with me, still on XP, and I know you're out there, we don't have to worry yet. We have some more time. I wonder if they could say the number of days till next exploit. Ooh. Be very quick. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that'd go negative immediately. <laughs> and, and red. Very fast. And then, and then finally, this is my favorite anti-bot thing I've ever seen. I don't know if anyone else has seen this or Leo, if you have, but I was filling, I was joining. Oh, I know what it was. I, I wanted to post, there was an AES uh, encryption tool whose documentation wasn't very clear. And so I wanted to write the author to ask him something about the way he was handling uh, logon information uh, or like, you know, password management and, and also where he was getting his entropy because that wasn't clear. And that's, of course, very important. So I, but I needed a post on this forum. And so I had to join in order to do that, but I felt this was worthwhile. So I filled out a form, you know, providing information. And then there was an anti-bot measure, something to prevent bots from 
joining. And I looked at it, I thought, uh-oh. And it was a question. What year was the Battle of Hastings? Now, this must be a British guy, because every, every Britain school, British school child knows that answer, 1066. But I suspect he's British, because well, I doubt actually, American school kids know this. <laughs> and come to think of it, in, seven day, in 10 days, that will also be how long Windows XP has left. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. I think not. Now, now is it always I, the same? It must change. exactly the question. I was just going to say, I've been tempted to go back and, like, pretend to sign up again. But that's better than a number, uh, than a CAPTCHA, I think. It's great. Well, it forced me to go to Wikipedia. You Wikipedia. Yeah, very yeah, quickly. I had, yeah. You know, go in, look up the answer. But, you know, bots don't know how to do that. So I thought that was just very clever. Yeah, I, I like thought, it. Yeah, bravo. Only a human. And, yes, exactly. And uh, who's buried really? in Grant's tomb? You could have asked that. <laughs> hmm. I don't think a computer would know that. Yeah, maybe not. Hmm. Uh, we do, though. We do. Uh, so, uh, very quickly, a, a listener, Merrick, uh, wrote to say that Spinrite fixed a problem without even running. And I thought, well, I haven't shared that little tidbit with our listeners before. He's, he's in Sweden, and he said, Hi, Steve. Last week, I brought over my computer to a friend of mine because we were having a LAN party. When I got home later that weekend and booted up my computer, it was extremely slow. It was practically impossible to work with it. It would start up in about 10 minutes, 10 times longer than before, and it would get stuck while performing tasks like mm -hmm. opening an application. Mm -hmm. After rebooting the computer a few times, I decided to use my copy of Spinrite. While booting into Spinrite, Spinrite immediately recognized that the drive's smart subsystem, for some reason, had been turned off. So Spinrite automatically turned it on. That surprised me. So before proceeding to run Spinrite, I tried booting normally. Bang! Everything was back to normal. I didn't need to run Spinrite. <laughs> the computer booted up just fine and worked as before. Sometimes. Thanks for a great product. <laughs> Sometimes the threat is stronger than the execution. And, and the act, oh, that's a good point. The drive saw Spinrite coming and said, oh, okay, I give up. I'll behave. Uh, actually, there's a bunch of stuff Spinrite does because drives can get themselves a little tangled up. There, is some, there are sticky bits in many drives, and among, among them is the smart enable or notness. And there's caching bits and error correction bits and things. So one of the things Spinrite does is sort of straighten things out as it's sort of getting ready to go, and that's all that was wrong with his drive. So it wow. wasn't actually a surface problem. It was just something in the sticky bits, which Spinrite fixed. Now, uh, somebody in the chat room has given me, Stride in the chat room has given me a, uh, another CAPTCHA ah. that you might like. You'll have to turn around and take a look at your screen just to prove you are human. Please answer the following math challenge. Calculate. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I don't even know uh, what the hell that good. is. I think I'd have to fire up Mathematica. Actually, wouldn't that would be a pretty good joke, you know, to have somebody, you know, the, the, the thing that always, always annoys me is when you fill out a huge long form and then you get to, to a capture that you cannot read. I mean, I'm definitely human. And and there's some that are just so nasty looking. It's like, oh. And, you know, sometimes you can say, give me another one, but not always. 
it would really be funny to, to like to have some sort of a deal where you like you fill out this really long form and you get down and you get like one of those things. It looks like some some graduate study in nuclear physics. And it's like, <laughs> what's the proper answer? Yeah. And not multiple choice because that would be cheating. You know, you got to fill in. The ah, here's one I could do. Minus three, minus two, minus five. So it says if you don't know the answer, just refresh. You'll probably get an easier question. And then it's it's a variety of, of very, I think in most cases, tricky math questions. Hmm. Find the least real zero of the polynomial P of X equals X squared plus 6X plus 9. Come on, you remember your algebra too? Come on! Okay, we would do a, we do a factorization. No, and he's going to do it. <laughs> Not necessary. What is this page? This must be MIT, right? That's so funny. I mean, who could this be that would, that would expect you to know that? It is the Ruder Boscovich Institute Quantum... Random bit generator service. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. If you need a quantum random bit generator, is that a joke? I don't, I somehow it doesn't feel like it is a joke. It's the Center for Information and Computing in uh, Zagreb. In the, uh, I, well, I don't even know if it's, uh, what, what the name for the, uh, Zagreb used to be in Yugoslavia. I don't even, I guess it's the, uh, I don't know what country it's in. That's a question. <laughs> I don't even know what country it's in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where is Zagreb these days? Is it Croatia? I don't know. All right, let's take a break. Hungary? No, not Hungary. Where is Zagreb? Croatia, all right. Used to be Yugoslavia, not Ruritania. We're going to take a break, come back with more. Steve has questions and... Actually, I have questions. Steve has answers, and none of our them are... Our listeners have questions, yeah. and now it's finally their turn to ask. Finally! You can ask some, um, some CAPTCHA questions of Steve. Somebody said Elbonia. I don't think so. And we have 12 today, because some of them are pretty quick. Oh, so, good. All right, yeah. well, that's, that'll be fun. It's a famous institute in Croatia. Okay, well, then maybe it's not a joke. And it's got random quantum bits, apparently. Apparently. Yeah. That would be, a, I guess you'd use that for a seed... Oh, you def no, you'd use that for, yes, I mean, or actually as a source of random numbers. That's really yeah, that's your cool. I, I've, I've been looking into it, too. In fact, one, I don't know if I, if I mentioned that uh, that's one of the features in the little YubiKey gizmo is it has a true hardware random number generator using um, electron tunneling noise, Whoa. which is one of the good ways to get, real. I mean, real Whoa. quantum level uncertainty stuff. So, yeah, very cool. And they do, they do get some easier ones. Here's 7 minus negative 7 plus negative 6. That's oh, any. So you just, you just, click, you just keep clicking until you get, until you get that, something that's yeah. not algebra yeah. 2 or calculus. <laughs> <sighs> Trigonometry. I don't even know what, what it is. I know one thing. If you're ready to set up a website, and everybody should have a website, I got a place for you. Squarespace.com. Now, again, this is, a, this is an example of probably most of you already have a website. But I bet you have family and friends who think... A website equals Facebook page. No! You need your own website. And if you're a business and you don't have a website, I don't know how you're staying in business. See, Squarespace makes it easy. You could even do this for friends and family. Just go to squarespace.com slash security now. Click the big green try it free button. You don't need a credit card. You don't need a... Even the CAPTCHA is easy. <laughs> and uh, just a site name, password, email address. And they're not going to use that for marketing just to let you know when your two weeks is up. 
or if you forget your password. And then the CAPTCHA, and you're designing a page with the full square spa space uh, set of tools, and I mean great tools. The social integration for Flickr, Facebook. Yes, you could put your Facebook tweets and so forth up there. Quick, Pandora. Uh, it also has a, a great iPhone and iPad application, not only for posting, but for moderating. You can import your existing material from your for using all four of the big APIs, Blogger, TypePad, WordPress, and Movable Type, but it also exports, so you're never trapped. I like that. I think that shows real respect for their users. You don't have to stay there because all your data is there. They'll let you, they'll let you out any time. Chris, you're not going to want to leave when you see the incredible stats packages, the templates that just don't look like templates, the customization you can do. You don't need CSS, but if you know it, you can do even more. And I'll just tell you, look at the examples to get some idea of the amazing sites, people, amazing businesses, for instance, that people are using Squarespace for. It is fantastic. Give it a try. Squarespace.com slash security now it's hosting plus the best darn content management system out there but don't let that scare you it's not exactly blog software you can blog with it but you could also do photo galleries you could do forms you could do e-commerce you could do anything you want squarespace.com slash security now give it a try we know you're going to love it and we thank them so much for their support of security now they are very secure themselves i can tell you that 12 questions good and true starting with Chuang Pham, who wrote a question to your support email address asking, uh, thanks for providing Shields Up. That's the port testing service that uh, Steve offers on his website, grc.com. However, I have one question regarding the user-specified custom port probe option. That's the USCPP. <laughs> <laughs> your website shows my port number 58529 is being failed it's not true stealth it's open due to the fact that i've opened this port for uploading data well uh, uh, well yeah uh, yeah so that means it's open uh, this is the nature of peer-to-peer -peer and views he's using something called vuze uses this port for both downloading and uploading now if i disable outgoing traffic in my router for this port then i can't upload any data would it be possible for you to reevaluate the rules <laughs> regarding P2P ports? And other P2P apps use different ports from views, so I assume they'll also fail according to your website scan. Interested in feedback? Kind regards, Chuang Fam. Well, Steve. <laughs> yeah, now, okay, I'm, now I'm wondering why. I, 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 I guess the answer is pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean. It, an open it's, port's and, an open and, port. I did reply to him because he was confused. Um, and I said, look, you've, you're. Maybe you're expecting Shields Up to be somehow aware of the fact that you've deliberately opened this port, but that's not something it can do. There's or 655. Should do. Exactly. There's 65535 possible ports, and he's using 58529, so, which I guess is the, the standard port f for that. One thing that I explained to him, though, was that because um, he was asking, you know, like, what vulnerability does this represent? So I said, well, Shields Up is, is confirming that unsolicited packets, because I deliberately send, the, the, the Shields Up system sends its probes from a different IP than the one the user is, is visiting at GRC, so that they are unsolicited and just like they were coming from anywhere else on the Internet. And so I said that what Shields Up is doing is it's, 
it's demonstrating that unsolicited packets are able to get into his his, his inner sanctum essentially through his, his router and i said it doesn't mean that this is unsafe but if you're you, and this is the reason i wanted to bring this up for our listeners is just to remind people about changing if you can the default ports because the point i made in my reply to him was that if this is views's standard port which they tell you to open for peer-to-peer -peer file sharing then if at some point a vulnerability was found in the views peer-to-peer -peer system that is you give it a certain packet or you connect to it and then you you in some way do something non-standard which causes a buffer overflow i mean it's it's given how hard it is to make these things right it's almost it's it's it strains credibility to imagine that there isn't somewhere lurking in there some sort of vulnerability and and the point is that once that became publicly known bad guys would immediately scan for port 58529 just as shields up is showing that's open they would be able to find all the people using views and then exploit that newly discovered vulnerability in order to you know to do malicious things so so really the lesson here is if if there's any way i mean it's like it's it's like you know not using the password password or you know changing the, the you know changing the the name from administrator to something else on your system it just it these are small things but they easy to do which end up being the reason that some people are compromised and other people aren't so if you are able to reconfigure your your peer to peer client anytime you've got to have a static port open there you know that is like the the common port for a given utility and shields up confirms that it is open that it sees it open that's a problem because it does mean that if something were found that was wrong with that and it was running on a standard port the bad guys would scan and it does not take that long as we've been saying to scan the entire internet in ipv4 space that's one of the nice things about v6 is it becomes impossible to scan the entire internet but you know we're not there yet you gave a very long answer i would have just said doofus <laughs> <laughs> that's the point of shields up to tell you what ports are open right period and he had to put that number in also, you know, because I'm scanning normally. We're, we're, you know, it was the user-specified custom port probe. Yes, it's open. Used. You opened it. Right. Well, I, and I, I did explain that to him. I mean, that's, I mean you're, you're very kind. I mean, and he's not a doofus, but I mean, that's a reasonable question. I don't know if it's a reasonable question, but the, this is what a port, oh, this is what port testing is. Is, is this port yeah, open? I, I guess he was he what he was saying was you know could you tell shields up about views no so that so that yeah, I know yeah no no uh, in <laughs> fact maybe you should think about do I want to open this port right that's the whole point right oh, I'm sorry you're very nice and it's but, the reason that we brought it up because our listeners are yeah, going no, I oh, shouldn't yeah, I should you're I, a I, gentle soul I'm I I shouldn't get upset that's a reasonable question but now you understand what what's going on why would you test a port to see if it's open when I mean, and you're well, surprised then, that it says it's open? Then you're going to love this next question, Leo. Oh, it's getting better. Fortunately, this one's anonymous. <laughs> and San Diego wondering, why are you still using Windows? 
Hi, Steve. Love the show. I've been listening for a little over a year now. During that time, until now, I've been able to bite my tongue, but I can't hold back any longer. For the love of all that is holy, why don't you use Linux? I think I asked Steve this in, in day one. In your last Q&A show, you mentioned how you would love to use BSD. And I suppose that by using Mac OS, you are using BSD. But why are you still on Windows? I understand if you want to be successful in developing software, you must test it on the OS that has the greatest market share. And, and this is the good question. Why for use it for personal use? In the same show, you mentioned something about not wanting to be on the command line all the time. Well, as I'm sure you know, there are probably close to 100 different window managers and desktop environments for Linux, Unix, there's GNOME, KDE, XFCE, Fluxbox, Openbox, Blackbox, and now Unity. Please try it out. They're a great advance. This is, a, uh, an, I think, an evangelist. Yeah, I think so. There are great advances, and I love Linux. I use it all the time. They're great. So don't. There are great advances being made every hour, <laughs> every hour in Linux and BSD technology, and it's free. I've been using Linux as my main OS since 2004, and I haven't looked back. I was forced to do something on Windows 7 recently. I found it very confusing and frustrating to use. I think it would be great if you started a small segment of the show discussing Linux and Unix desktop security vulnerabilities. Because, of course, I know there's no perfect OS. Thanks for everything. I think that's appropriate. Why don't you just use Linux? Um, I like Windows. No. Oh. I don't like Windows 7. I like XP. Um, maybe someday I'll like Windows but 7. It, but, Steve, I don't it's know. a toy operating system. You've it is it. a toy. And, I mean, it... it <laughs> <laughs> it really is. No, I I mean, I, I I wanted to add this question today because I, we do get this in our mailbag a lot. And it's, it is, I guess it's a number of things. First of all, anything I want is available for Windows. Not everything I want is available for Mac. On the other hand, not everything... That, that's um, th there are some things for the Mac that are not available on Windows. You may, may remember that I switched to using the Mac for some period of time um, when I was writing all the code for those machines that are over my left shoulder behind me. Um, all of that was on a on a PDP-8 simulator that was only available for the Mac. So I I dusted off um, a MacBook Pro and and used it happily for for some length of time. So you know, and I've got a BSD server where. Um, our news groups live, and it's the DNS server for GRC. And and you know, every time I touch it, I feel good. It just feels right somehow. And so you know, the idea that that Mac's got you know a real good Unix underneath with a very nice UI on top. To me, I think that's probably my sweet spot. But um, I'm you know, I know Windows inside and out. I'm a Windows developer. Anything that I want. Like, you know, my little wacky um, Wismo, which a surprising number of people like and use for turning their monitors off and rebooting and, and doing little, little utility functions. It's easy for me to whip these things out for Windows. Much as I said I was considering doing a, a countdown for days left in XP's life. So, you know, I'm a Windows developer and, and, uh, and a Windows user. And, uh, you know, I've never been, knock on wood, uh, been bitten by any of these problems that that do catch out so many people because I'm a very careful Windows user and I do not click links in email. So well, and that's you know, another it, answer it works for me. which you've given in the past, which is how am I to talk about Windows security? How am I to be an expert in Windows security if I don't use Windows? Right. So you kind of have to. I mean, it's not merely because you want to sell more copies of Spinrite. 
No. Uh, it's, in fact, it's not that at all. You write no, because it, it, it runs in DOS. Right itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it has nothing to do with that. It has to do really with the fact that if you want to talk about security... Uh, well, and Leo, if I want to affect the most right. people, frankly, you know, my DNS benchmark is, is incredibly popular. I looked at the DNS page. I think 1,500 people a day look at that, and about 500 of them are downloaded every single day. Well, you know, sorry. I mean, Linux exists, yes, but Windows is where everyone is. Windows, I mean, and the Mac, and the Mac to a, to a growing degree, but if I, and when I wrote um, the, the benchmark, I did make sure that it ran under Wine for Linux and the Mac in acknowledgement that those platforms are growing in strength. But still, I mean, by default, Windows is, is you know, it's ubiquitous. So, I, you know, I want the things that I write to be able to help the most people. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you don't make money on those freebies. So no. And, you know, you know how to develop for Windows. You're not a Mac developer or a Linux developer, and that's just what you, what you uh, know how to do. And I've frankly, often, it would be a huge learning curve. I yeah, mean, it's not no, it's small not trivial, to switch platforms. For instance, SpinWrite, which uses Int13, it has to be on BIOS. You're using a BIOS call. You'd have to duplicate all that functionality on EFI. And I guess you could do it in Linux, wouldn't be so hard. But, you know, it still doesn't run in Linux. It runs perfectly well on a Linux box in DOS. You just put the, you create the boot disk, you stick it in, it's running on free DOS, and it just runs. So that's fine. Well, yeah, and, you know, you, you often see multi-platform things that just aren't very good. Yeah. I mean, for example, they make you install Java because they're written in Java. Yeah. And it's like, okay, they work, but, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they don't feel like, there, it's like because they wanted to run anywhere, they don't really run anywhere right. very well. And it's like, ah, that's not a trade-off I want to make. I want to make really, really good stuff for Windows. Yeah. And increasingly uh, acknowledge that it's not the only solution in town and, and put some time into supporting the other platforms as well, as I have. I begged him to, I begged him to write... Uh... To rewrite SpinWrite to work on the Mac. But no. <laughs> I just, not quite yet. No, but that's fine. Because I just take the drive out, put it on a PC, and run. It works fine. Yeah. Um, Friedrich H. Burkhardsmeyer, who lives in Thailand, <laughs> just to throw you a curve, wonders about virtual keyboard and form grabbing. Steve, in one of your recent episodes, you recommended the use of a virtual keyboard to enter passwords so they can't be intercepted by keystroke loggers. My concern is that passwords could still be intercepted by something called a form grabber. Once the virtual key keyboard has been used to fill in the form. In other words, you are submitting it, frankly. Correct. I would appreciate it if you could elaborate on this topic. How are form grabbers implemented? Are there effective countermeasures a user could take? Thanks for the excellent software and for the great podcast. I always look forward to listening every episode. Friedrich Burkhardsmeyer. So, okay, so what he's saying is that he recognizes that a virtual keyboard, like a keyboard on the screen, which you click with the mouse, will avoid a hardware keystroke, and, an, and actually hardware and probably software keystroke logger, but that once you've used that to fill out the form, when you submit the form, you, there's this possibility that the contents of the form could be grabbed by some malware running in your machine, and he's absolutely right. The, as, as we've said before, the web was originally a content delivery system. So the concept of, 
of interacting with web servers interactively, that is sending data back, posting things, this was all something that was sort of an afterthought. And in fact, the design sort of demonstrates that. One of the ways that data is sent back, the, the sort of the most ugly way, is you make a request of the server and you add the data to the end of the URL. So it's whatever, blah, 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 dot HTML, question mark, the, 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 the reserved symbol question mark specifies that this is the end of the URL and the beginning of additional data. That is to say form data, which is then tacked on the end. Um, it, it has uses because it allows you to, for example, save search queries in, in shortcuts because the shortcut is just able to save the URL. So there are some advantages to it. But the problem is anything that sees what, you know, what you're submitting is able to look at your forms. And the alternative way of submitting data basically just, just has the, the data um, after a space line under this, the um, submission headers, you just list all of the data in all of the fields in clear text and off it goes. It doesn't get encrypted, of course, until it goes into SSL. So the, the, the form contents itself is in the clear. There, you know, in, in thinking about the answer to his question, the only thing I could imagine that would solve this would be scripting, which would run in the browser client which would intercept the submission button, and that's easy to do in JavaScript, preventing the normal browser behavior. It would then take the data from the form, encrypt it well, and then submit that. So it really needs to be, it, need, it needs to be a service provided by the page containing the form that you're submitting. And so that would, that would be, since it's a, it's a service provided by, by the page the, of the service you're, you're submitting the form to, it would be, you know, for example, LastPass. They do this, for example. They've got script running in the client that encrypts this stuff at your end before it ever goes over the wire. And so it's certainly possible that that could be done, although... This, today, you know, the number of services that do that are, you could probably count them on one hand. So we're a ways away from having security from, from that kind of exploit. Question four, Andrew in Tucson, Arizona, wonders about IPv6 support for your program, Shields Up. Can, uh, can you add IPv6? <laughs> I feel for you, Steve. Can you add IPv6 support for Shields Up? Most operating systems lack an easy way to view if an IPv6 firewall is enabled or to easily check what rules are applied. For instance, OS X lacks an accessible IPv6 firewall. But so, shows up, it's not a firewall, first of all. No, but of course it does test yours. Um, and I'm getting an increasing flux of questions about IPv6. I don't know if it's because we're talking about it so much on the podcast or people are increasingly you know, getting ready to use it and, and they want something to, to verify you know, what they're... Um, ports are that are open. The good news is um, I'm moving toward that pretty quickly. I've got hardware on order. I've got IP networks are being added and it looks to me like it's not going to be a really huge problem. The architecture that I created, Shields Up is I think it's in its maybe third iteration and I really had figured out how to do it. 
by 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 the third try. Um, that was that nanoprobe edition that I came out with a few years back, mm-hmm. and it's just its implementation is so clean that I can add the IPv6 layer to it without much trouble. So um, I, I don't have an ETA. I don't work with ETAs, as everyone knows, but it's definitely on my radar. And I like the idea of being out there early and maybe even exclusively with a, a good port tester for IPv6. Cool. Joshua Gardner, San Antonio, Texas, wonders about Memtest 86. Oh, I remember Memtest 86. That's a blast from the past. I was fumbling yep. around on the web, found this nifty open source program, memtest86.com uh, for testing RAM. It appears to be quite extensive in what it tests and the patterns tested. I was just curious if you've heard of it in your thoughts. Finding a way to actually test memory and give it a conclusive good or bad status has been a real challenge. Um, and you're right. Memtest86 has been around since, not surprisingly, the 8086, <laughs> um, which is where it got its name. It turns out it's tricky to test memory. And as you could imagine that being a hardware level guy and the author of Spinrite, at one point I sort of thought, hmm, maybe I ought to get into the memory testing business also. The problem is that if I found a problem in a bank of RAM, the user would want to know which was the bad SIM. And I mean, and anyway, I, and there's really no way to tell. You, 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 there's no way to to accurately, especially these days, where, where sims are paired and they're dims and they're quads and it's like very complex, there's no way to be able to say, oh, on your motherboard, it's this one over here. So um, I just decided not to do my own, you know, GRC style mem test. And there is a good one that already exists, and that is this mem test 86. It's not as simple to test RAM as writing some data in, and then reading it back out. Because, and you'll remember this from the old days, Leo, core memory used to have something called a checkerboard test. Mm, right. And it was because the, it turns out that not all data which you would write into core memory was equally easily read back. And so it actually, that, that introduced the notion of of ways you could read and write that, in, that induced the maximum amount of noise in the core memory system and, and, and best tested the, the, the one and zero discriminators. Turns out that RAM bears a strong relationship to that. That is to say that, that the way memory, the way dynamic memory tends to fail is that adjacent bits improperly influence each other. So, for example, you want to write a one into a given bit and then write zeros into all of its neighbors and see if the writing of zero into its neighbors influences the one that you stored. And then you want to write a zero there and write ones into all the neighbors and and do that. And you can imagine it's extremely difficult and time-consuming. So, bottom line is, Joshua and all of our listeners, Memtest 86 is a terrific program. It runs standalone. It's bootable. You can. It's free, open source. You can uh, download an ISO. You burn to a CD, boot a machine, and just let it crank away. And when I've had some strange, hard to diagnose problems, that's what I've used in order to see whether all of my RAM is working. And it's also a great exerciser if you're working on like pushing, you know, tweaking your system and, and wanting to get the ma- the maximum speed 
out of RAM, uh, this is a good way to see whether, you know, without the, all the other layers of OS and everything confusing things, if the RAM itself is being pushed too hard at the, uh, based on the weight states and, and speed that you've told your, your fancy BIOS to run. There is an updated Memtest 86. It's called uh, Memtest 86 Plus at memtest.org. That's probably where I would go to uh, uh, get it as, as opposed to the uh, URL that uh, Joshua mentioned. Is it memtest86.org? It's memtest.org. But it is. Okay, good. It's, it's basically what's happened is that the, the, the guy who wrote Memtest 86, Chris Brady, uh, stopped adding, developing it. And uh, so uh, there was a team that took the open source and updated it. It's, uh, it's open sourced. It's a GPL. And so it's free. And you can see everything that they've done. And it just makes it more up to date. Yes, so. good. I, I, it's funny because he put memtest86.org. And I went there right. first and I saw like an, a, an abandoned pseudo search site. He was confused, site. I think. Yes. So there is memtest86.com, but that hasn't been updated since 2002. Ah, memtest.org. No 86, just memtest.org. Is Perfect. The is the fresh version. Same idea, same, same source, basically, just updated for modern OSs and so forth. Uh, actually, probably not OSs, modern hardware, I guess. Yes. Kai Frank in Germany would love to use Seagate HDD hardware encryption that's built in, of course. Stephen Leo, I'm a longtime listener of your show, very security concerned. My question, is TrueCrypt's whole drive encryption as secure as Seagate's HDD hardware encryption? Ever since your TrueCrypt episode, I've been using TrueCrypt all the time, and right now I'm using whole drive encryption on my netbook. But encryption decryption is, of course, CPU intensive, needs more energy, reduces my battery life. I didn't even think of that, but I guess it would. Yeah. Because the netbook includes a 250 gigabyte Seagate hard drive, I looked around on their webpage to find a bigger, faster drive with lower energy consumption, then I found a drive that supported hardware encryption. Wouldn't that mean I don't need a CPU-hungry TrueCrypt anymore? Best regards, Kai Frank in Germany. Well, the problem is with just swapping a, an encrypted hard drive for one that isn't, is that you absolutely have to have BIOS support. Ah. And it's, it's in some laptops, but I don't know about a, net, a random netbook. Um, it, you can check your BIOS. You can get into the BIOS of your netbook See whether it talks about a hard drive password. Um, and, and it's not clear. I mean, you, you'll need to see whether it's just as a standard BIOS password or hard drive password or hard drive encryption. Normally, they'll make it clear that, that it is hardware, there's hard drive encryption because it's, it requires BIOS support because the first thing that happens when the, when the laptop powers up is it has to, to, to provide the, the encryption password to the, to the hard drive that normally comes from the TPM, from the Trusted Platform Module. So you normally enable the Trusted Platform Module, and then it contains the, the password for the hard drive's hardware encryption. But unfortunately, it is not as simple as dropping a hardware-encrypted drive in anywhere and just having it work. And it definitely needs to have a hard drive password in addition to probably the trusted platform module. And, for example, on most mainstream motherboard, uh, we still don't have a hard drive password, but laptops typically do. Oh, that's interesting. By the way, now they're telling me, oh, no, memtist86.com has been updated. <laughs> so, 
try one or the other. That's probably exactly the same. Yeah, they're free. Yeah. Brent in central Illinois is confused about the RSA attack we talked about last week. Steve, additional details have now been released. CNET had a story. They said that the RSA attack was due to a phishing email that exploited a flash vulnerability. Flash? Displayed in an email? Crazy, huh? Anyway, I'm not really clear exactly how they got infected because they said the email had also attached an infected Excel file. So Flash loaded the infected Excel file, which infected the system. Is that how it worked? Please, please explain. Well, I thought this was important enough just to quickly touch on this and, and explain that, that, it's, that it, Brent is right in being confused, that it's sort of the other way around. And we see this over and over and over um, in, in spear phishing sorts of attacks. The vulnerability is in Flash. That's the, that's the culprit. But in order to get Flash to run, because typically email won't run it, it needs to get encapsulated in something else. And typically users need to be coaxed into opening something. So it's, it's, it's generally, a, for example, a Microsoft Doc Word document or an Excel spreadsheet. And that was the case in the RSA attack. It was an Excel spreadsheet which, which was opened by a link in the email and embedded in the Excel file was the, was the, was the, the Flash exploit. So it's the, it's the document that contains the Flash exploit, which is executed by either Word or Excel, them, they being the carriers. So don't open those. Don't. Open don't. attachments. Don't do it. Don't click links in email. Don't open attachments. Knock it off. Steve Holmes in Lake Forest, California, found a terrific Bitcoin podcast episode. Here's an FYI. We did a whole show on Bitcoin. Um, he says he listened to the April 4th Econ Talk podcast interviewing uh, Gavin Andresen, a principal of the Bitcoin Virtual Currency Project. Uh, that podcast is at econtalk.org, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K.org. Uh, and they talk about uh, Bitcoin, uh, the origins of it, how new currency gets created, how you can acquire Bitcoins, prospects for Bitcoin's future. Could it eventually replace government-sanctioned currency? How can users trust it, what threatens it, and how it might thrive? Thank you, Steve. Yeah, um, I wanted just to share that with our listeners. There's been a, an enduring interest in Bitcoin no ever since our podcast. Um, so it's econtalk.org. You'll have to scroll down. They've got a number of podcasts. It's very nice. It's about an hour-long audio podcast. It's a, The date is April 4th, and it's uh, a not-so-technical interviewer interviewing Gavin, who is a coder and and technical and really understands this stuff and does a really nice job. So if anyone wants any additional, you know, dip into Bitcoin, I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. A dip into Bitcoin. Michael Dombrowski in Washington, D.C. wonders about the Do Not Track and Google Analytics. You were talking on episode 295 about DNT, that header... Uh, that uh, tells a browser, uh, well, actually that a browser uses to tell uh, a site not to track it. You said the U.S. will most likely eventually make it illegal not to honor a do not track request. I hope the tracking is clearly defined, however. As someone who runs a few sites, I need to know how many people visit my site and what posts do the best. I hope the tracking is defined as tracking a user as they surf from site to site, not as they browse a single site. 
Products like Google Analytics are greatly, greatly helpful to me as a site administrator. I use uh, Google Analytics too, actually. Among others, I also use Quantcast uh, on our sites. I can only hope that the bureaucrats... In fact, if you download this podcast, you go through a little track. I can only hope that the bureaucrats do not make this all about political parties and also think about the implications any law they pass will have. Thank you for all you do for the tech and security communities. And he says, uh, can I pimp my, my site? Unblockedalways.com. Hey, let me ask you. I didn't even think of that. I t we track, in a sense, the only way we can uh, tell advertisers how many people have listened to this show is if you look at the URL for the show, it, f it filters you through a site real quickly, the PodTrack site, uh, and that's how we count how many downloads we've had. And they, yeah. they do a lot of stuff. I mean, they, they, it's not just like, oh, one two, three, they compare the IP address that you're coming in from to a, a database of uh, IP addresses. They make sure it's unique. They make sure it's real. Um, we do a lot of stuff with that. I, I, would we be uh, affected by this? It's a really good question. And my, you know, Michael raises a good point. I hope that we don't see overreach in, in what the Congress does. I, I have to imagine there'll be hearings. There'll be people really arguing against this being too pervasive or 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 too onerous and 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 the clear distinction will be made certainly between first party and third party tracking i think i think we pretty much understand what it is that we don't want and so we just need to get legislation that does a good job of you know encoding that into legal jargon it's kind so, of scary. I know. Let's hope we don't. <laughs> yeah, be because bad? I mean, because because I mean the, the I don't know whether it is blocking... third party tracking for us. You go to our site or you go to iTunes, and it tra goes through the PodTrack site briefly. Yeah, yeah, and they are getting people's IPs. We know that they, they do. don't care that they're they're, they're just aggregating them. them and so forth. We don't but, even you know, aggregate them. We just compare it to a database and say, yeah. oh, this is a real IP address, and have we, I guess we'd have to collect them to see if it's unique. So uh, I guess uh, for each show, it does make, you're right, it makes a database of who's downloaded it, and we just compare it to, because otherwise, if you download it 20 times, we advertisers don't want us to count that as 20 impressions. Well, it counts okay, as one. so I think that one of the problems we're going to have is that just a single DNT header with a single on-off switch is going to be too coarse. What, what could happen, for example, is that, if this legislation were enacted and it were decided that, for example, PodTrack was, ooh, gee, what's that second syllable in their name? Um, uh, <laughs> T-R-A-C, uh, yep. Yeah, if PodTrack was tracking, then what would happen is if they received a, a link which they would normally redirect, which contained the DNT header, they'd have to instead give you a page and say, we're sorry, um, you've come to PodTrack. Here's our privacy policy. Here's why you've come. This is what we do, and why you know why you have visited us. Please make an exception for your DNT header for us, so that we are able to forward you to the material you want. Um, or they could that or, or that page could just show the direct link that you would be forwarded to, and you could click that instead, you know, if you manually didn't want to be tracked in that given instance. So, you know, there are workarounds, but I, I really do think that, that there will be instances where people essentially need to or want to give permission for some clearly defined, delineated, you know, reasonable 
um, you know, tracking essentially. You can see, you, you know, can see why this is, is a complex issue. I mean, yes, um, it would put us out of business. Uh, Guillaume in France wonders about the SSL OCSP protocol. Steve, I'm, I'm an engineering student in computer science, a GNU Linux user, and listener since December 2010. I watched your uh, last Security Now podcast and was concerned by the SSL authority breach. The OCSP protocol is used to check the status of certificates, and the default behavior is if OCSP fails to get a certificate status, it is... If it fails to get a certificate status, it's assumed to be valid. So it's kind of upside down. However, this default behavior can be changed, at least in Firefox 4. Go to Option, Advanced Encryption, Validation. There you can check a box to assume that certificates are invalid if the OCSP status check fails. Thanks for the show, so Guillaume. Yeah, so I wanted just to bring this up to our listeners. We, we didn't talk in detail... Uh, OCSP came up briefly when we were talking about SSL revocation a couple weeks ago. Uh, OCSP stands for Online Certificate Status Protocol. And the spooky thing about it is that it potentially represents a privacy compromise. Because the way OCSP operates, it's not a revocation list, which is the alternative approach. Instead, when enabled your browser will will manually i mean deliberately connect to a verification server every time you visit a site with a certificate so the certificate can contain a url saying here's the url of our ocsp server if you want to verify and and so you can and, and then there's another setting, for example, in Firefox, and this also is in prior to version four. It's in four and also in in the three Firefox chain, and that allows you to override the certificates uh, statement and always go to a specific OCSP server, uh, which can sometimes be useful. Um, and the the problem though is that essentially what that what that's doing is. Everywhere you go that is secure, your browser is sending a beacon out to to whatever OCSP server is specified with you know that inherently contains your IP because it's it's establishing a connection in order to verify that the certificate the certificate is currently still valid. So it's a nice technology in as much as it um, it does allow for real-time verification of certificates. The problem is that it, it also allows for this OCSP server to know that you're going to that site. The reason it currently fails in the wrong direction, that is, if you, for example, if the OCSP server didn't respond, Firefox and, and all the other browsers that, that support this fail open. That is, they just go, okay, well, we don't know that it's bad, so since we haven't heard anything, we're going to assume it's good. That's the behavior that can be inverted, and I think it probably makes sense to invert it. One of the, one of the concerns with OCSP is that, you know, it, it, if uh, a, a, an OCSP server were under a denial-of-service attack or had a network outage or whatever, then... If browsers failed hard, then suddenly 
all the certificates that were referring to the OCSP server would refuse to connect. And that would be really bad. So, again, it's like, well, we want the security, but we don't want too much because that might get in our way and bite us. Last question for the Gibson from Lee in Houston. Oh, and this is good. He, he mentions a Firefox plugin called Certificate Patrol. For expert users like us and your listeners, it's a great help. It alerts when SSL certificates change by comparing and displaying the old and new certs side by side. My employer probably won't be able to start proxying my communications without my noticing. So Aww. this is exactly what I said I wish we had, yeah. and Firefox does have it. I did some poking around looking for one and didn't use the right keywords, I guess, but Certificate Patrol, I have found it and downloaded it, um, and I'm impressed with what I've seen. For example, it will even it's, it's built some intelligence in. So the first time you go to a site to which you have never been, when, that is to say, when it's going to be caching the certificate for the first time, it stops you and shows you the certificate and says, Hi, um, here's a chance. We're, we're, about, we're about to put this in the cache, so make sure this looks good to you so you don't initially cache a bad one. And so you don't go to a site through like a bogus certificate chain the first time. Then, when I talked about it being a little intelligent, it will notice... For example, if a certificate has been reissued after the prior one expired. So it's smart enough to say, oh, just by the way, the certificate for this site you're visiting has been updated because the prior one expired. So it'll see that the one it had in its cache before had expired, see that it's, it's being you know, now given a new certificate with a different serial number since they, every certificate has a different serial number, and let you know what's going on. I think this is a great solution. And if you did go to a site that had a bogus certificate, or there was a man in the middle attack going on, or your employer was setting up a proxy, or any of those things, this thing would warn you. It's exactly what we want. So uh, Google Firefox Certificate Patrol, and you can find that add-on and yeah. install it. And there was one comment from someone who posted saying that, it actually did work. His employer was adding a web proxy, and because he had Certificate Patrol installed, it alerted him. <laughs> <laughs> all, all we want is control. That's yeah, all we're asking we for. We just, we just want to know what's going on. But please don't, don't not track us. Don't let us not. <laughs> I don't want to go out of business. No. It'll be okay, Leo. Oh. I'm sure our listeners will make an exception, but we're going to have to have, it's very much like no script, you know, where scripting is disabled by default, but then you enable it for sites you trust. Yeah, Duke that'll TNT. basically kill us because most people won't enable it. It'll just it'll uh, be dead. Well, but no, but I mean, they'll, they'll be, they'll, if, if it's dead, then uh, I don't know what. Well, and that's the whole issue about tracking, and I'm sure it's one of the things Google is thinking is, oh, I know what it is, Leo. They'll, they'll come to Twit. And you will see if they if their if their DNT header is on when and they we'll say when no they podcast come, for you, and then, and then you can explain. You say, "Hey, sorry about this. I hope this is not an inconvenience, but we need you to make an exception to DNT for you know the following URLs in order for the podcast to be available." So it'll be possible to intelligently handle it. It'll put us out of business. I guarantee oh. you, because people just they don't do it. They don't do that. They just go, "Oh, never mind." Bye. 
Uh, that's okay. We'll worry. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. There may be other ways to measure without tracking, and I guess we'll have to find those ways. Uh, actually, there are. There, I mean, you could do it yourself. It's a convenience for you that you're bouncing through a third party. But well, advertisers demand it, of course, because uh, advertisers don't want numbers from us. Because right. we, we could lie. Yeah, but you could put some script. You, you, you could do an, a Google Analytics style thing where you put some script on the page that would that would still be giving control to a third party. So there, there are probably ways to do it. Maybe that would still be illegal. I don't know. Well, that's the issue, and I think that that's really something that's to think about. Those are the unintended consequences of uh, of not tracking. I don't, on privacy, uh, you know, yeah. this is if you're an ad supported network and people use ad blockers, it, it ultimately puts you out of business. And uh, it's the same. It's the same thing. Um, that's why it's a larger conversation. But uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm a I'm a bullish optimist. Or maybe I, I think too it. much of the internet is is running on. I mean, with benign tracking. So it's you know it's benign tracking. Nobody no nobody minds. It's you know it, it's having personal information aggregated. That oh, is I agree. Really yeah, I agree. But I don't think that uh, these uh, tools and laws make much distinction. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to worry about it. If we go out of business, we go out of business. I can get that boat then. Uh, thank you, Steve. A great show as always. Now next week we don't. I do you know what we uh, what we're going to cover? I mean, believe me, too much happens in a week, Leo. It's Who hard knows to say. what's going to happen? <laughs> I've got a whole list of things to talk about. So if nothing else comes up to preempt, uh, then I'll pull from my list and we'll have another great podcast. You bet. And by the way, if you have questions for Steve, we'll be doing questions and answers again in a couple of shows. Go to grc.com/feedback while you're there. Pick up a copy of SpinRite. Everybody should have that. If you've got a hard drive, you need SpinRite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Also, lots of other freebies, including, as we mentioned, Shields Up. But there's also Wismo. There's toys. There's security. There's everything. It's a great site, grc.com. You'll find show notes there, transcriptions of each and every show, all 298 episodes. We're going to be episode 300 in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we are. And, uh, of course, uh, Steve does 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired as well. GRC. Steve, thanks as always, and uh, I'll see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. On Security Now. Security Now.